People probably know we're doing a fundraising uh, uh, month, and um, we have gifts. We have mugs, <laughs> and so here's how you get a mug: you can uh, make a um, repeating contribution of any amount, uh, you know, just repeating month after month. That would be very welcome. Or uh, you can make a contribution during the month of June of fifty dollars. And either way. Um, a mug is yours. Does anybody have one of the mugs? Oh, we, don't have, we don't have a chance to show you how wonderful they are, but they really are wonderful. So, uh, in fact, um, those of you who have met those criteria, um, there's some mugs in, in the kitchen on the table, so pick them up. <laughs> Yes. I just have a question about sashimi. Is it possible for people to do a portion of it, or is it um, essential to do the entire uh, evening and then day and a half? You know, I think if someone wanted to do a portion of a stick to this, um, it would be okay to do Saturday. Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of the teaching will happen on Saturday. Mm -hmm. You know, how to do Oriopi, that kind of stuff. So a person who comes in Sunday won't really know what uh, the other people are doing. But if somebody wanted to do just Saturday, um, the, the whole day, that would be fine. Thank you. Thanks. Oh, uh, <laughs> I thought you might get a question. <laughs> What I'd like to take up this evening is the question, who are we really? We work so hard to build an identity for ourselves. I mean, I look back at my experience, and I'm sure you guys do too, um, thinking about studying hard in school, and uh, you know, I became a psychologist in graduate school, and uh, really trying to find my path into that identity as a psychologist. And uh, we put a lot of energy into establishing identity. We have a certain image that we would like to have, want to project. We would like to have a certain lifestyle as part of identity. We'd like to have the respect of our friends and colleagues. We even pick our likes and dislikes so that they conform to our identity. Um, Nick recently told us in the Wednesday group um, that he, had, he was publishing some music online. And he tuned in to how selfie an experience it was. Uh, identity was really wrapped up in it. And uh, he found that, you know, he, he put his music out there online, and then there were a lot of doubts coming in. Oh, will the people I want to um, admire, admire it? You know, what, how will it be accepted in the community? And 
And Nick told us that he did that with his music online, knowing that it would stir up all kinds of self-reflection. Various vulnerabilities and judgments were inevitable in doing that. And he really tried not to identify with the kind of reflection that was going to come up. Not to identify with those fears. To see it just as part of making music. I think Nick was in the optimal situation to go past his fears because he was doing something that was valuable and meaningful to him. If you have to identify with something, you might identify with the making of the art. And you might identify with the effort to transcend the ego that would hold us back from giving the art to others. And we know this process of moving forward with what's important despite our egos and our fears. We know this as the path. It doesn't surprise me that Nick's self emerged around the music. Our music has a lot to do with how we think of ourselves especially if we're creating it, but even just listening to it. At least that's the way I've experienced uh, music in my life as part of identity. I grew up, I think I mentioned in a classical music household. My father liked classical music and he sang in the church choir. And um, it used to be this thing where um, a concert would be broadcast on TV and channel two of the audio would be broadcast on radio. So you could have stereo before people had stereo. <laughs> and we did that religiously, whenever those concerts were on in, in my house. So, so I was really uh, imbued with the spirit of classical music. And then, you know, I became like a, a preteen and started listening to the top 40 radio. <laughs> which my father did not particularly like to listen to. And then there was, you know, folk music, which I identified with, and, you know, everything else, Jefferson Airplane, <laughs> jazz, and Afro-Cuban music, and, you know, everything. In college, high school and college, really, I was way too energetic for classic classical music. And I couldn't identify with it during that period. That changed too. But this is kind of a harmless, or roughly harmless, aspect of identification. And in that example, I, I hope we can all see how when we identify with this, whatever it is, kind of music or profession or whatever, as a consequence of that, we repudiate something else. And this also not that. So identification is not just harmless. Tomorrow's arraignment in Miami is going to show us the dark side of having an identity and a disidentity. 
There will be friends and foes there. I think we'll all see something about what happens when we identify what is really a part of ourselves as an other and how much suffering that causes. Buddhism from its earlier days has tried to warn us against this. It's tried to prevent what the ancient sutra calls the taking up of rods and weapons, of arguments, quarrels, disputes, accusations, divisive tail-bearing and false speech. The sutras warn us about identifying with anything, about trying to find a self in anything. They saw it as the root of suffering and especially as the root of conflict. Because as I was saying, if we identify with this, then we also see ourselves as not that. And that particular delusion that we are separate and separable from each other is the precondition for all our other ills of anger and grief. In our, in our more modern branch of Buddhism, the Mahayana, the Heart Sutra presents us with the same idea. Heart Sutra talks about how things are empty. And empty means things have no independent existence. Everything is entirely integrated into the web of all life. Entirely dependent on others. So completely, there can't really be others. And the Heart Sutra asserts, there can't really be a self. So then, if that's true, what is this? What is right here? Well, what Heart Sutra says, nothing in particular. It's always only this. Self and other are just conventions. They're signs. They're deeply embedded conveniences that define how we will talk about our mutuality. From childhood on, we develop what psychologists call relational frames. And these are ways of organizing our world that help us identify me and you, here and there, now and then. And this is how we give structure to the chaos of constant change. And this is how we disguise the infinite the wholeness that is always here. If we look at what we call the self, there is no real completeness there. The Heart Sutra says what we are is this kind of amalgamation of experiences. 
we've got form, you know, the experience of materiality, that feeling refers to all of our sensation and, and all of our uh, reactivity. Perceptions, everything we might think or say or understand about the world. Impulses, our intentions. And consciousness, the way we divide and organize our experience. The self is made just of these different kinds of experiences that we put together and identify with and call it a thing. But none of these experiences is stable or constant. I mean, we know that if we just reflect on a moment of our life, we see that. None of the things that make up the self has a self. All of the components of the self, every experience, is constructed moment to moment and it's constructed not by us, but by everything. The Heart Sutra tells us that nothing has an independent essence and that everything is dependent on causes and conditions, everything else. The Heart Sutra the Heart Sutra tells us that everything is essential for anything to be. So it's interesting to think, how does this wisdom, we call it prajna paramita, the perfection of wisdom, how does this instruct us in our practice, in our satsang? read an interesting quote from a, one of our Japanese teachers. He said, uh, entering the Zendo means not to take myself into that space. If we put ourselves in the practice, it makes the practice of knowing who we really are more difficult. Zazen is just this practice of letting go of all of the ideas about ourselves that we are attached to and just entering in. Zazen is the practice of allowing the flow of experience just to be the flow of experience, not making a this and a that. Last week, my, my teacher, Shokin, was here. And uh, he talked about our practice is just to stand up in moment. I want to clarify that. To stand up in moment is not to assert self to meet the moment, or to manipulate the moment, or to try to make sure moment comes out the way we want it to. <laughs> to stand up in moment is to be moment. The whole thing, without rejecting any of it. And when we do that, the heart's interesting, the mind is unhindered. It's unlimited. And our fears can't stand up to that. 
Nick told us, if we get caught up in our image of ourselves, we will suffer. If we can let go, we find what we really are, and that's what we do, and that's it. And when we get off the zafu and go about our business, even when we engage, you know, the world out there with our individual selves, we still take the real self with us. We should try to remember that. When we do assert ourselves, let's try not to make any enemies. I was working out yesterday at the Ray Meyer Center, that's the gym at DePaul. And, uh, you know, I, I have this routine, I do, you know, this exercise and that exercise, and there are these various machines that you use, you know, to do these exercises. So I was doing one after another, and there was a guy at the machine that I was not going to, who was, like, taking forever. <laughs> like, he would do his set, and then he would open his iPad and fool around on his iPad, and then close his iPad, and I thought, okay, he's going to do the next set. But then he would pull out his phone and do something on his phone. And, you know, after some interminable period, he would do the next set. And I noticed he did three sets, which is what people normally do. So I kind of got up from my machine and went and stood by his, thinking he was going to get up. He looked at me and said, no, one more. So, but he did this process of iPad, phone. Eventually, he did his last set. So, I walked up and he was getting up and he left his towel and his iPad on that machine and he walked over to another machine and started prepping that one to use. And I said, oh, sorry, you forgot your towel and your iPad. And he turned around and he looked at me like, who was I to tell him something like that? I mean, it was a little scary. And he said, I'll get it in a minute. Okay. And I could feel inside, you know, that identification. You can't talk to me like that. But fortunately, I had been thinking about this topic and working on this. <laughs> this is the advantage teachers have. We immerse ourselves in some piece of dharma, and inevitably it finds its way into our life. So. He said, this arose, you can't talk to me like that. But what arose right on the heels of it was, ah, thanks for showing me how my greed and my anger and my entitlement work. I mean, I had seen his greed and his anger and his entitlement work, and I recognized it was mine. He, he was just holding it for that moment. And of course, trying to evoke it in me. But the whole thing, the taking up of rods and weapons, as the sutra says, starts with me against you. So when we assert ourselves, let's make sure that it's to, to take care of something that's important. 
when we assert ourselves, let's make sure that we do it to nurture something that we love and that we're grateful for. Something maybe even that helps all beings, like this practice of Zazen, like music, like nonviolence. Last week, I got this other amazing portrait of the self, the portrait of life itself. We went to the, the symphony and we heard uh, Mahler's Ninth Symphony, which I don't know if you've heard. It's pretty amazing, especially the fourth movement, which is profound and joyful and tender and pathetic and so many things that you can do. And the interesting thing about this music is how it's built. It's constantly revolving around a, a little theme, just a little theme. It's this kind of spiral theme, revolving around itself and then ending up in a slightly different place. And the orchestra took that theme and they played it with these instruments and then with those instruments and then with all instruments and then with one instrument. And every time it changed. The key changed, the note that it ended up on changed, the note that it started on changed, the tone of it, whether triumphant or sublime, changed. And finally, it was pared down to its smallest elements, a note or two fading away and just becoming one with the silence that had always surrounded it. This is the self of the heart century. We seem similar from day to day, but if we really pay attention, we're not quite in the same key. We're not carrying the same tone. We're not beginning on the same note or ending on the same note. It, I mean, we have this spiral-type pattern in our lives. There's something that repeats, but there's nothing essential there. And eventually, it's reduced, and eventually it blends with the silence that always surrounded it. With, or we could even say, it blends with the fullness that always surrounds Last week you guys met my teacher, I met him over 20 years ago. Uh, when I first met him, the land that the monastery is is on had just been donated to us. And it was Rohatsu, the first week in December. And we did our first sashim in a reconditioned farmhouse that was full of mice. That, that was over 20 years ago. Shokan, as you saw, is pretty grandfatherly now. But over 20 years, I've seen him be a thousand different 
so many different uh, uh, different variations. Some of them are kind, and some of them are full of ego and harmful. I'll say this pretty much about Chopin in terms of that spiral pattern that repeats itself. He was always pretty much capable of self-reflection. If you were forthright, he could meet you with vulnerability and authenticity. But what is Chopin? Well, we couldn't point to anything and say, that's Chopin. If I told you about his kindness, you would miss his anger. If I told you about his determination, you would miss his doubt and fragility. We have all these signs, these identifiers, and none of them are worth a damn. I could tell you about Mahler's Ninth, but that's not the fluidity of the music. I can tell you about Chopin, but all you would see is a fragment. Sometimes we have to turn away from signs because all signs are unchanging, and so they are deceptive. Tomorrow in Miami, all of our signs are going to be on display. There are going to be demonstrators from the left and demonstrators from the right. There are going to be people with automatic weapons. Threats will be made. Testosterone will flow. Feelings of being mistreated will abound. It's going to be really difficult to keep even a glimpse of our wholeness, our ultimate, our complete dependence on each other. We always tend to identify, even with the type of music that we listen to, and we exclude anyone else as an other. And that will be in full display tomorrow. The local preachers in Miami should be reminding their congregations to love their neighbor as their self. The local Buddhists should be right there chanting the Heart Sutra. Before you turn, turn on CNN tomorrow afternoon, you might think about chanting the Heart Sutra to yourself. You might play the fourth movement of Mahler's Ninth. <laughs> or you might turn to some other art to help you preserve your wisdom about our interconnectedness and about the trouble that comes from science. I'm thinking specifically of a painting by René Magritte. Painting as a design that is you know, an image of a pipe. <laughs> you get to know it. And underneath it, it says, 
Ceci n'est pas un This is not a So it's like this Zen koan that asserts this contradiction and you're supposed to resolve it in some way. The priest was pretty smart. He understood that when we saw the drawing, we would identify it as a pipe. Inevitably. And then he challenges our sign making. He challenges the name that we've given. And he says, this is not a pipe. And of course it's not. It's our image of a pipe. It's, it's the way we identify something and think we know it. This painting, I think, is worthy of a Zen master. <laughs> it negates our tendency to pretend that the image or that the sign or that the idea is the real thing. The Greeks called this work the treachery of images. And that's the treachery we should watch for when we watch the crowds gather in Miami. The way our wholeness, the way who we really are is betrayed all the time to our, um, to our great heart.